take your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews this morning. We're going to be looking at chapter 10, uh, just verses 1 to 18. If you are here and you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in front of you, and you'll find our passage this morning on page 1108, 1108 in the Pew Bibles, or Hebrews chapter 10. I was struck as we were singing that last song that I'm so thankful that that's true. That as we open this and as I'm about to read this, that we believe that it is the Lord speaking. We say, speak, O Lord, and we mean that. We think that God has spoken to us. And so we don't just have to feel our way about in the dark wondering what he's like and what does he want from us. What's life all about? He's told us. He's spoken, and so now we, as his people, get to hear him speak to us this morning. So I invite you to listen in on Hebrews chapter 10. Hear the word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we get started, one of the things that has also been on my, my mind and my heart this week is recently... Uh, hopefully you got to meet some of them. We've had a few different pastor friends cycle through here. Um, many of them are on their sabbaticals and just gives them an opportunity to step away for a season and they're visiting other churches during that time. And as I've gotten to have lunch with them afterwards and just they've kind of volunteered their thoughts of like what it was like to be here, I've gotten probably the two best encouragements that I think a pastor could get about their church. The thing that they've all said continuously Two things stood out to them about being here on a Sunday morning. And they said, man, those people were engaged and eager for the word of God. They, like, they, they noticed it. They saw it. And it just, it, they thought, that's awesome. They loved that. And not only that, but they said, and they're really excited about Jesus. Like, you can tell it when they sing. You can tell it how they respond to the sermon. He's like, and I loved hearing that because I thought, man, if that's who we are, isn't that who we want to be? If we were known as like, oh, Chapelwood, that's that church where they are eager for the word of God and they are excited about the good news of Jesus. That's the kind of people we want to be. 
And because we believe that God really has spoken, that's why we lean in, right? That's why we listen. It's because we think God is speaking. And we think that what he's told us is the most amazing news ever. The fact that he's told us that broken, messed up people like you and me can have our sins forgiven and be given new life in Jesus, it doesn't get any better than that. So I wanted to start by saying thank you. Thank you for being those people. Thank you for loving Jesus. Thank you for loving God's word so that when others come in, there's an aroma here. There's a, there's a fragrance that like, yeah, that's, that's what's good and right and pleasing and beautiful about this place and this people. So thank you for being that. Which leads into this next part, which is, guess what? We get more of that this morning. We get to see more Jesus, and we're going to keep seeing how he's better than all the Old Testament sacrificial system. And in many ways, what we're going to be looking at this morning in this passage is the last thing Jesus said on the cross. So in John 19, as he hung on the cross in our place, the last thing Jesus said was, It is finished. So it begs the question, what was finished? What do you mean, Jesus? What is finished? And so what we're going to do is, I think Hebrews 10 is going to unpack that phrase. What does it mean that it was finished? And we're going to see not only what was finished, but why is that such good news for us this morning? And one of the things I love about this passage is how it involves all three persons of the Godhead. See, as Christians, we believe that God is a trinity, that there are three persons in one God. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we believe that our salvation was not just something accomplished or procured by one or two members of the Godhead. It wasn't just Jesus acting in isolation from the others. We believe the work of redemption was the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And I think we're going to see that in our passage this morning. So let me give you a roadmap of where we're going so you kind of get a lay of the land. In verses 1 to 4, we're first going to see the weakness of Old Testament religion. The weakness of Old Testament religion. Then in verses 5 to 10, we're going to see the will of God. Then in 11 to 14, the work of Christ. And in 15 to 18, the witness of the Spirit. So we see what's What's wrong? And then we're going to see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But before we jump into that part of the text, I have a question. Now, we've, If you've been here for a while and you've been tracking with us through Hebrews, we've said all along that this book of Hebrews was written to struggling Christians who are facing hardships and fears and doubts. And the goal of the book was written to help them hold on to the hope that they have. Right? Saying, don't let go. Keep going. Keep following Jesus. Keep walking the path of faith through the trials of life. The goal is to get us home to the heavenly city. So the question is, if that's the goal, why is there such this emphasis on priesthood and covenant and sacrifice? If the book's about aiming at our endurance and our perseverance, is that where you would choose to go? The topics you would choose to talk about if you're trying to help other Christians hang on to their hope in Jesus. What would you say? Something good to think about. If I was trying to encourage a fellow Christian to keep going, don't give up, what, where would I go? Well, I think what Hebrews shows us by the fact that it spends so long here is it's showing us that what keeps us trusting Jesus all the way to the end is that we need to know deep in our bones that our sins are forgiven. Not just have heard a, pra- a pastor say it one time in a sermon, but we need to know it. Like more certainly than I know that this is here. Like I know that you can't convince me. You can spend all day long, all night long and say that pulpit's not really there. I won't believe you. And we need to be that sure my sins are forgiven. And we need to be that sure that it's not because of anything I've done. That I can't fall back into thinking like, well, it's because I really got myself together. And I really worked hard. I need to know that my sins are forgiven because Jesus, my great high priest, has purchased my forgiveness through his sacrifice of himself on the cross. And I can't add anything to it. That's what Hebrews is telling us you need to know to keep going as Christians. 
We don't need more tips for living or more rules to follow. We need to know that our sins are forgiven and our guilt is gone. In other words, we need to see more of Jesus and what he's done for us. So let's do that. Let's fix our eyes on him again this morning. Now before we get to Jesus, though, our text doesn't start with him. We first need to see why the old system wasn't working. So let's look at the weakness of Old Testament religion. Look at verse 1 again. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so our passage starts off here by saying the law has only a shadow. A shadow of the good things that have come. Not, not the true realities. And that's a really helpful picture, I think, to help us not only understand this, but to kind of understand our Bibles, how they work. Right? Think about how a shadow works. You've got a light shining on an object, and on the other side of that object, there's a shadow. Okay? We all know that. Well, what he's saying is what we had in the Old Testament was shadows. The substance, the object, the thing being shined upon, he says, that's Christ. That's Jesus. So there's a light, so to speak, shining back onto Christ in his work in the New Testament. That's where it's shining, but that casts a shadow backwards into our Old Testament. So that's kind of the flow of what we see. Now, when we see, when we see Jesus in the New Testament, we see he's the reality. He's what it's all about. But what we see in the shadow is the Old Testament law. And all we get is this general idea about Jesus and his work. So think about it. If, if you're walking somewhere, this is actually, well, you guys can't see it. I can see my own shadow up here. I realize most of you can't. But if you're walking somewhere and you can, you're coming around a corner and I can see a shadow being cast, I can tell a few things about whatever's on the other side of that corner, right? I can roughly make out the shape of it. I can see an outline of it. I can maybe get, if it's moving, I can get a sense for what it's doing. But it's all, it's kind of vague. It's only, it's, it's not sketched in. There's so much I can't see. I, I can't see details. I can't see colors. I can't see layers. I can't see precise movements. You can only see that by seeing the real thing. So what the picture is here, he's saying is that what the law and the sacrifices were like, were like these shadows, where we get a general idea, like, okay, I think I, that kind of looks like that. We kind of see what forgiveness looks like, but it's just a vague outline. We could make out, okay, it looks like I need a sacrifice and there's some blood and a priest. I, I see those pieces, but it's still fuzzy. I can't see clarity because they're just a shadow. And the thing about shadows is that no matter how many sacrifices were made, they couldn't add up to the reality that we needed. Because no matter how many shadows you stack on top of each other, they don't add up to a real thing, right? You can have a shadow, 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 you still can't touch it. It's still not the real thing. Which is why it says they had to keep offering them over and over, year after year. Then the author he makes this simple but profound point. He says, we know they didn't work because if they had worked, they wouldn't need to keep making them over and over again. He's saying if sacrificing animals could take away sin, we'd all just go offer our bull and be done with it. The problem would be solved. But the priests, he says, couldn't stop sacrificing because sin was still there. It hadn't been taken away. And every sacrifice was actually a reminder of that, verse 3 says. So every time the Day of Atonement rolls around and you had to go for the sacrifice, you were reminded, oh yeah, we still need this, don't we? That's why I'm coming here. My sin and my guilt remains. It's like a patient who every time they pop the lid of their medicine and takes their pill, you're reminded, oh yeah, I'm still sick. 
I still need this. If I, didn't, if I was well, I could put this away. But the fact that I open the cap and take another piece of medicine is a reminder I'm still sick. And every time they'd offer their bull, every time they'd offer their goat, they'd be reminded sin is still here. These aren't enough. They couldn't cure the problem. When I say they couldn't cure, what, what, is it, what do I mean? What couldn't they do? Well, verse 1 tells us they can never make perfect those who draw near. And verse 4 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So these sacrifices, they couldn't take away sins and they can't make people perfect. We talked before, that doesn't mean like that they do everything right. It means that they have been made ready to enter the presence of God. Their sins have been atoned for. They've been cleansed. They've been qualified to stand in God's presence. And these things couldn't do it. No matter how many they made. As I thought about this, you know, I, I like to think in pictures. And so here's the picture I came up with for what's going on in the Old Testament. Imagine there's something wrong with your car. Like it just sputters out on you one day. So you somehow you get it into the mechanic, he takes a look, and he says, look, here's the problem. What you really need is this whole new engine, right? It's like that's what actually will keep your car, make your car the way it should be. Like it's really broken. And he tells you the price. And you say, well, okay, well, that's not an option because that's nowhere near what I can afford. I mean, it's so far out of my budget, it's ridiculous. He says, okay, but there is a fix that I can do that will, it won't make your problem go away, but it will make you able to keep getting down the road a little bit further. So it, it won't fix it, but it will help you keep moving. Here's the thing though, if I do this fix for you, it's a really short-term fix. You're gonna need to come back every week. You're gonna have to keep coming back over and over and over again. You say, well, why would I wanna do that? It's like, because that's the only thing you can afford. So you say, okay, well, I can't afford the fix, the permanent fix I need. So I guess I will, I'll take the temporary fix that I can afford. So you keep putting on more little quick fixes, more duct tape and super glue, whatever else. And you keep puttering along, but your problem isn't fixed. And how do you know that your problem's not fixed yet? Because you have to keep going back to the mechanic. Every time you go back, it's a reminder, oh yeah, the car's still not fixed. The car's still not fixed. If it was fixed, you wouldn't need to go back. But the fix you need is impossibly out of your budget. That's where the people found themselves under the law. The sacrifice they needed, it was more than any of them could pay. They just didn't have it. So they did the temporary fix just to keep going. They offered the sacrifices for sins that they could. But it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually take away their sins. Why is that? Why weren't the bulls and goats enough? Because they weren't worth enough. Just like if I were to go and try to pay for the new engine and say, well, I've got, I got a couple things here. here what's the, there's a big silver one and a little bronze copper one thing. What, how much about that? He's like, sir, that's a quarter and a penny. I'm like, well, yeah, but that's something, right? That's two monies. You take my two monies and you can have it. They're not worth enough. I, can, I just don't have enough pennies in my pocket to put up there. I can put penny after penny after penny and it won't add up to what I need. Well, that's, these are animals. They're not worth enough. What it would actually cost to fix the problem was worth way more than the value of animals. The price we owed to pay for the solution to our sins was too expensive to be covered by bulls and goats. We needed something far more precious. And one reason that animals can never be enough, we mentioned this last week, is because they were unwilling victims. They didn't volunteer to take the place of the people for their sins. They didn't step forward and say, I will do this. Out of love and compassion, they just said, they were dragged and pulled and said, you're going to take their place. They were unwilling victims. And to pay for our disobedience, what we really needed was a sacrifice who gave themselves willingly. One who laid down his own life as an act 
of obedience. Why obedience? I'm glad you asked, because that takes us to our next point. The will of God. Now, I want you to keep in mind what we just said, that the, the, one of the problems with the animal sacrifices is that they don't work because they're not a sacrifice of obedience. Now, look at verses 5 to 7, where he quotes from Psalm 40. He says, Consequently, or therefore, in light of what we just said, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Okay, so the problem, at least one problem, with the animals is that they were forced into dying for the sins of others. So what's the solution? Consequently, therefore, when Christ comes into the world, he says two things. He says, first, look, sacrifices and offerings, God, you've not desired. All these animals upon animals upon animals, in them you have no pleasure. In other words, that's not what you really want, God. I know that. That's not what you're after. So I'm not going to do that. There's a reason Jesus didn't come to offer animals on our behalf. So what did he come to do? He says, behold, I have come to do your will. Well, now how do we make sense of this? Well, guess what? In verses 8 to 10, the author explains what this means and why it matters. I love when this happens because you have in your Bibles the Bible doing Bible study. Your author is looking at Psalm 40 and he says, here's a text. Now let me tell you what it means and how it applies to our situation. So he's doing Bible study. So now what does he say? Look at verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Now let's hit pause. Stop there a minute. That should raise a question. Because here's Jesus And notice, sidebar, notice that it says Christ is speaking in Psalm 40. I'm I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to throw that out there and let you kind of wrestle with that and raise questions later. I'd love to talk about it. For the sake of time, I'm not going to get into that. Christ is speaking in Psalm 40. And what does he say? He says, God, you don't desire or take pleasure in all these sacrifices that the law requires should raise the question but wait a minute isn't God the one who put them in the law thank God I know that all this stuff that the law requires it's not what you really want I thought God was all about these sacrifices and here's the thing is we misunderstand our old testament if we think that what God was truly after was the sacrifice of animals they were just shadows They were meant to point to something else. In fact, listen to how God talks about sacrifices in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you just a couple here. In Isaiah 1, God says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Amos 5, God says, Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. So God himself, in the Bible, says that he gets fed up with the endless sacrifices that are given as empty religious rituals. He doesn't delight in them. The people think, well, we can live however we want as long as God gets the sacrifice that he wants. And they were dead wrong. Those sacrifices were not what God was after at all. So what is he after? Listen to these now. Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Hosea 6. God says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. 
And 1 Samuel 15, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And there's plenty more where those came from. What I want you to see is that what God loves is not sacrifice, but humble, broken-hearted obedience flowing out of hearts that know and love God. These sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, those are what people had to offer when they didn't give that. Those sacrifices were constant reminders of their disobedience. So every time you went, basically you can imagine a conversation. Hey, Charlie, welcome. What, what do you need to make a sacrifice for? Well, I disobey. Okay, give me your bull. Right? That's the transaction. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? It's a reminder. I disobeyed. I disobeyed. I disobeyed. God's like, I don't want constant reminders of disobedience. What I want is obedience. But instead of brokenhearted obedience, too often the people and we give proud-hearted disobedience. We think we know better. I don't need God. Ah, that part of the Bible, I don't need that part. I can, I'm listening to a lot of it. I, I think that part's off right there. So we just do our own thing. Here's the thing. God wasn't after sacrifices because those only revealed the absence of what he really wanted, which was obedience. They didn't give him what he wanted. They revealed the absence of the very thing he wanted, obedience, which makes total sense when we read verse 9. So after Christ says in Psalm 40 that sacrifices were not what God desired or took pleasure in, verse 9 says, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus came to do what God really wanted. God didn't want more dead animals. He wanted obedience. An obedience that could actually take away our disobedience. Jesus said, that's why I've come, God, to do your will. The writer here, he keys in on that word at the beginning of verse 9. Then. You see that same word, same thing up in verse 7. Then. He points out that after Christ says sacrifices are what are not what God really desires, then he says, in contrast to that, I have come to do your will. I have come to do what you do desire, namely obey. So verse 9, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. Meaning what? Jesus does away with the involuntary, unwilling animal sacrifices that are not what God ultimately wants in order to be the thing God does want. A sacrifice of obedience. Isn't that what Philippians 2 tells us about Jesus? And being found in human form, in other words, when he took on that body prepared for him, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How does God respond to that? How does God respond to Jesus becoming obedient to the point of death. You know the next verse. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? Why is that therefore so important? Why is that so critical? He's saying, because he did what I want. Finally, want a person in flesh and blood. I made mankind for this kind of wholehearted, joy-filled obedience, and nobody's given it, but he has. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name because he did what nobody else has done. That's what he wanted, wholehearted obedience that flowed from a deep love and intimate knowledge of God. So Jesus' offering could do what the animals couldn't because he gave himself willingly as a sacrifice for us. He wasn't taken and dragged and forced, kicking and screaming against his will. He gave himself for us. Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Why is that in your Bibles? You always need to ask, why did God make sure I needed to know that? I think this is one reason. 
Because we need to see that Jesus was giving it willingly and obediently. That verse goes on and talks about how it's in accord with the charge I received from my father. That's why I have authority to lay it down and pick it back up again because it lines up with what God told me to do. Jesus laid down his life as the willing, obedient sacrifice. And by his obedience, two things happened. Because he was obedient, one, his death paid for all our disobedience. And his obedience got credited to us. His record of obedience becomes ours. Think about Romans 5. For as by the one man, talking about Adam, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What obedience is he talking about? The obedience unto death, even death on a cross. The reason that he came, I've come to do your will, O God. What is it? It's to be obedient to the point of death. The kind of obedience that makes many righteous. And look at this. By making us righteous, guess what? Jesus was doing what God wanted. That was him doing God's will. How do I know that? Verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been sanctified, he says. We've been cleansed. We've been set apart. We've been made holy. We've been made righteous once for all through Jesus offering his body on the cross. And how did that come about? Is that just a happy coincidence, a happy circumstance? It came about by that will. What will? The will of the Father that doesn't delight in animal sacrifices, but delights in obedience. On the cross, Jesus gave God the obedience he desired. And then he gave us his obedience to count for us, which was also what God desired. Do you see that? That, that will includes us. That what God willed and wanted was for you and me to be made holy forever. Think about that. That's what God, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Well, that's a big verse. I wonder what, God ple what pleases God. Well, if God's will, what he wants, is for us to be sanctified, to be holy, that's going to happen. What God wants for you, friends, is for you to be holy. That's what he desires. He wants you to be cleansed. He wants you to be pure and blameless in his sight. He destined us to be. That's the plan he has for your life. If you were in Christ, you want to know, what's God going to do in my life? I can't tell you what job he'll give you. I can't tell you about your marital status, how many kids or grandkids you'll have. But I can tell you this, that God's will that will be accomplished is he will make you holy. And here's the thing. Bulls and goats, they can never get that done. They just helped us keep patching up that broken problem. A little more duct tape. Another goat, another bull, get us on down the road. What we needed was a better sacrifice that could fix our sin problem once and for all. Which brings us to our next section, the work of Christ. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So he sets up two big contrasts here between the sacrifices in the Old Testament and Christ's sacrifice. And they both, they're two examples, but they both point to the same truth. First, he talks about the priests. He says, there they are, always standing, always busy, never able to rest. See, they're standing daily, offering repeatedly, over and over again, the same sacrifices. Even the way he writes it is meant to make us feel this. There they are, bull after bull, goat after goat. They never stop because there's always more to do. That's the life of the old covenant priest. It's like a song stuck on repeat. Do, 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 do. 
But then Jesus comes along. And over that constant hum of do, do, do of religion, his voice cries out, done! It is finished! And he sits down. He offered a single sacrifice for sins for all time and then sat down. Why? Because the work was over. There was nothing more to do. Friends, his sacrifice was complete and perfect and it did what the other sacrifices couldn't. The old sacrifices could never take away sins. But Jesus has could. Here's another picture for you. Our sins we're talking about the value of things, right? Well, our, our, imagine our sins have racked up this debt we could never afford. It's like having a credit card balance in the billions. I don't know who's giving credit lines like that, but let's just say you got one and your credit card balance is in the billions of dollars. There's no way you're paying that back. No way. Now, the Old Testament sacrifices, they were like your minimum monthly payment. They're like, you got to make this payment or else we take everything you have. Now, they're not actually chipping into your debt at all. Your balance isn't dropping a penny. These are just to kind of pay a little bit of the interest. In fact, you're, you're, if you're in the billions, your balance is still going up. But like, if you give us this much, we won't take your stuff. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices were. They had to keep paying it just to get by. But no matter how hard you work, so you say, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get after this debt. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to go get a second job. I'm going to go get a third job. I'm going to work, work, work. And I'm also, I'm going to not spend anything. I'm not going to add to this account. I'm, I'm going to save and scrimp, check the couch cushions. I'm going to do everything I can. But no matter how hard you work, no matter what those sacrifices were doing, they're not putting a dent in what you owed. You're exhausted from working hard, but your debt, it's just too much. My guess is many of us are living there this morning. That if you're honest with yourself, you're tired and you're exhausted. Not because it's been a long week, not because your job is demanding or there's something going on in your family. You're exhausted from working so hard to try to measure up working so hard to be good enough. You're running yourself ragged with your efforts to make up for the sin that you know is there. So you're working hard, first of all, not to let others see it, and then second of all, to try to pay it off. Like if I could just, if I do a few good things, if I have a good week of Bible reading, if, if I just make sure I pray five minutes more every day this week, I, I can chip away at the debt, chip away at the debt. Spiritually, you're putting in overtime. You're working weekends. You're scrimping and saving to dig out of the hole you're in, but you know that your balance isn't dropping. If that's you, Jesus has something to say to you this morning. Over your life and over your efforts and your sacrifices to be a good person, Jesus simply says, it is finished. Stop. It's done. I paid it all. Your debt is gone. Now, some of us here, we say, oh, we hear that and we think, good, good. But if we're honest, we, uh, we hear that. We're very grateful. So we say, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the contribution. I really appreciate the help because every little bit helps, right? That's so great that you chip in for me towards my debt. I, I think after your contribution, I should be able to handle the rest. We're very grateful. Oh, and it takes, it's a load off, but we think there's still more to do. He really took a chunk of the amount we owed. Ah, that, the balance, it's not so bad. I can handle that now. You sing Jesus paid it all, but your heart hasn't updated its budget. You're still living like the debt's there. Or you're trying to pay ahead thinking, I'm okay right now, but I'm sure I'm going to screw up later and I want to have a little bit of credit on the account so that I can afford it later. And to you and your guilt and your worry, Jesus says, it is finished. And he means 
It is finished completely. He's, Jesus right now says, I sat down. I didn't sit down just to take a break. I sat down because I was done. There's nothing more to do, so stop trying to do more. You can't add to what Jesus has done. So our call this morning to each of us here, whether it's the first time or you need to do it all over again every single day, is will you trust him? When Jesus says it is finished, will you believe him? It's really that simple. It's either we believe it when you say, he really did do it all and I can rest in that, or we say, I don't know if it's finished, finished, Jesus. Will you lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete? That's his invitation to you. I hope if, if you're here and you're not used to coming to church and you don't know what Christianity is about and you think, oh great, they're going to give me a bunch of rules. Surprise! We're here not to tell you you got to do more. We're here to tell you what Jesus has already done. And my one call to you is trust him. Rest in him. Run to him and say, I, don't, I can't afford it, but Jesus, I hear you've paid it all. And I believe that. That's what he's looking for. So will you trust him? We can trust him because Jesus did what the other sacrifices couldn't do. Notice how verse 1 said the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Can't do it. But now look at verse 14 about Jesus. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus takes away our sin completely and makes us able to draw near to God. He qualifies us to stand in God's presence. And he's made us this way, it says, for all time. And don't miss this. Who is it that Jesus has perfected for all time? Those who are being sanctified. Those who have put their trust in Jesus and are being changed and cleansed by him. But notice, verse 10 says, we have been sanctified. But here in verse 14 says, we are being sanctified. So wait, wait a minute, which is it? Have been sanctified or are being sanctified? Hopefully you know the answer is, yes! Jesus has permanently changed our status and he is progressively changing us we have been sanctified once for all through the offering of the body of jesus christ your status is changed forever tomorrow next week next year 10 billion years from now your status is secure because the work is done you have been made perfect and you still have sin. He's still at work in you. He's daily sanctifying us, changing us to be more and more like Christ. We are being made more and more wholeheartedly obedient, just like Jesus, the obedient one. And that's good news. Why? Because God delights in obedience. So we've talked at length about the will of God and the work of Christ, but what about the third member of the Trinity? Well, we'll close in verses 15 to 18 with the witness of the Spirit. Look at verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds... I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now notice, he says the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. So is he saying that as I'm alone by myself and I get a funny feeling, just there's a change in the atmosphere that comes over me, how is the Spirit bearing witness? What does he do next? He says the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. Then he quotes from Jeremiah 31. So how does the Holy Spirit bear witness to us? Through the Bible. The Spirit 
who inspire the Word of God testifies to us through the Word of God. And to whom does he bear witness, it says? To us. That's a present tense verb in there. He bears witness. Your Bible should not say he bore witness. Like long ago he did this. It says right now he bears witness. Now even when Hebrews was written, that's hundreds of years after Jeremiah. So if the author hundreds of years later could say, hey, people that I'm writing to, guess what? Right now, today, the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to us. The same is true for you and I this morning. Right now, he's still witnessing to us this morning. And what is he saying? Two things. First, he tells us of God's promise in the new covenant to change us on the inside. To not just give us rules outside us to obey, but to put them in our hearts and minds so that we want to obey them, so that we can obey them. So that now, we're not bringing God's sacrifices anymore. What are we bringing him instead? We're bringing him humble, broken-hearted obedience that flows from a heart that knows and loves God, which is what God was after all along. But, but what about our disobedience? That's still there. That, that didn't go away. What about all the times and ways that we've failed and we've sinned against God? What about all the times where we've blown it? The Holy Spirit bears witness to us this morning in verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Don't gloss over that. In fact, I encourage you to spend time pondering that this week. What does it mean that God will remember our sins no more? One thing it means is that when God forgives, he doesn't hold on to it, stick it in his back pocket and think, that might come in handy later. Next time you slip up, oh, hey, remember? He doesn't do that. God's not holding it over your head saying, remember all that you've done? Anytime now, I'm just waiting to level that charge against you. When God forgives us, he remembers it no more. It's gone. Done. It is finished. He has wiped the hard drive clean. He's thrown it to the bottom of the sea. It's as far as the east is from the west. In other words, your sin is so far from God's mind. What does he see instead? When he looks at you, he doesn't say, oh yeah, I remember yesterday. I remember two years ago. I remember every sin you've ever done. I'm just, when I look at you, I can't help but see your list of sins. That's not what God sees. You know what he sees? He sees a record of spotless obedience of Jesus Christ in your place. And God delights in obedience. That's why when God looks at us, there's a smile on his face because he sees obedience. He sees the obedience of Christ that has changed your status, that is unwaveringly, unchangingly true. So even when you have a bad day and you sin, guess what? Your status isn't affected. But that doesn't mean that like, oh, well, what about the actual obedience I offer? Is that just meaningless because I have Christ? No. He smiles when you do your little steps of obedience. When you make that decision to not watch that thing you shouldn't watch. When you don't make that comment in a conversation. When you don't post the thing you should, shouldn't post online. When your heart doesn't give in to envy and greed. When you don't give in to anger. When you don't click that link that you know you shouldn't click. When you take those steps of obedience, your God delights in obedience. That's why he put his law in your mind and wrote it on your hearts. Here's where we come full circle. Remember back up in verse 3, it said in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And we talked about how it reminded the people about the sins they couldn't get rid of. Making the sacrifices was a reminder that you still had it. But the sacrifices weren't just a reminder to the people. They were a reminder to God as well. So every year as you came to make your sacrifice, your sins were front and center before God. They were called to mind. Called to mind. The never-ending sacrifices were never-ending reminders that we are sinners We are sinners. But when Jesus brings the new covenant, it says the reminders are finished because the sacrifices are finished. God fully and finally forgives us of our sin. And as verse 18 says, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. No more sin that needs paid for means no more sacrifices. 
No more sacrifices means no more reminders. No more reminders means God will remember our sins no more. Friends, I hope you see Jesus has done it all. He's paid it all. There's nothing more to do. His work is finished. We have forgiveness now and forever by his blood. Now our high priest. Like I hope you see Jesus in his passage. And when I hope you see Jesus in his passage, I hope you see our great high priest seated. Sitting. As just a yet another reminder to you saying, I'm done. It's finished. And as he's sitting there, he beckons to all says, come. You who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest because it is finished. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you, for, thank you for your will and purposes. Thank you that your heart is not a heart that just loves animal sacrifices. They were never what you were after. They were a means to an end. Thank you that what you desire is obedience that flows from a heart that knows and loves you. And thank you that when we couldn't give you that, you gave us your son who could. And thank you that because he has offered the obedience that we all owe, our debt has been paid. Thank you that we can rest in that. Lord, I pray that for myself and this people that we would cease our striving. We would know that our warfare is ended. That our God has made peace. And that we can rest in his work. Would we, would we work from forgiveness and no longer for forgiveness? Help us to delight in that. Help us to live as people with a banner over us saying, it is finished. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.